Section 5 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. What the King Came to, Part 1. The population of these islands at the close of the reign of Queen Anne was probably not more than one-fifth of its present amount. It is not easy to arrive at a precise knowledge with regard to the number of the inhabitants of England at that time, because there was no census taken until 1801. We have, therefore, to be content with calculations founded on the number of houses that paid certain taxes, and on the register of debts. This is, of course, not a very exact way of getting at the result, but it enables us to form a tolerably fair general estimate. According to these calculations, then, the population of England and Wales together was something like five millions and a half. The population of Ireland at the same time appears to have been about two millions, that of Scotland little more than one. But the distribution of the population of these countries was very different then from that of the present day. Now the great cities and towns form the numerical strength of England and Scotland at least, but at that time the agricultural districts had a much larger proportion of the population than the towns could boast of. London was then considered a vast and enormous city, but it was only a hamlet when compared with the London which we know. Even then it absorbed more than one-tenth of the whole population of England and Wales. At the beginning of the reign of King George I, London had a population of about 700,000, and it is a fact worthy of notice that, rapidly as the population of England has grown between that time and this, the growth of the metropolis has been even greater in proportion. The city and Westminster were, at the beginning of George's reign, and for long after, two distinct and separate towns between them still lay many wide spaces on which men were only beginning to build houses fashion was already moving westward in the metropolis obeying that curious impulse which seems to prevail in all modern cities and which makes the west end as eagerly sought after in paris in edinburgh and in new york as in london the life of london centered in st paul's and the exchange that of westminster in the court and the houses of parliament all around the old houses of parliament were lanes squares streets and gateways covering the wide spaces and broad thoroughfares with which we are familiar between parliament buildings and the two churches of st peter and st margaret ran a narrow densely crowded street known as st margaret's lane the spot where Parliament Street now opens into Bridge Street was part of an uninterrupted row of houses running down to the water gate by the river. The market house of the old woolen market stood just where Westminster Bridge begins. The Parliament houses themselves are as much changed as their surroundings. St. Stephen's Gallery now occupies the site of St. Stephen's Chapel, where the commons used to sit. Westminster Hall had rows of little shops or booths ranged all along each wall inside. They had been there for generations, and they certainly did not add either to the beauty or the safety of the ancient hall. 
in the early part of the seventeenth century some of them took fire and came near to laying in ashes one of the oldest occupied buildings in the world luckily however the fire was put out with slight damage but the dangerous little shops were suffered to remain then and for long after the lesser london of that day lives for us in contemporary engravings in the pages of the spectator and the tatler in the poems of swift and pope in the pictures of hogarth hogarth's men and women belong indeed to a later generation than the generation which bolingbroke dazzled and marlborough deceived and arbuthnot satirized and steele made merry over but it is only the men and women who are different the background remains the same new actors have taken the parts the costumes are somewhat altered but the scenes are scarcely changed there may be a steeple more or a signboard less in the streets that hogarth drew than there were when addison walked them but practically they are the same and remained the same for a still later generation maps of the time show us how curiously small london was there is open country to the north just beyond bloomsbury square sadler's wells is out in the country so is st pancras so is tottenham court so is marylebone at the east stepney lies far away a distant hamlet beyond hanover square to the west stretch fields again where tyburn road became the road to oxford there is very little of london south of the river the best part of the political and social life of this small london was practically lived in the still smaller area of st james's a term which generally includes rather more than is contained within the strict limits of st james's parish if some jacobite gentleman or loyal hanoverian courtier of the year seventeen fourteen could revisit to-day the scenes in which he schemed and quarrelled he would find himself among the familiar names of strangely unfamiliar places st james's park indeed has not altered out of all recognition since the days when duke belair and my lady betty and my lady rattle walked the mall between the hours of twelve and two and quoted from congreve about laughing at the great world and the small there were avenues of trees then as now instead of the ornamental water ran a long canal populous with ducks which joined a pond called no one knows why rosamond's pond this pond was a favorite trysting place for happy lovers the sylvan deities and rural powers of the place sacred and inviolable to love often heard lovers vows repeated by its streams and echoes and a convenient water for unhappy lovers to drown themselves in if we may credit the tatler st james's palace and marlborough house on its right are scarcely changed but to the left only lord godolphin's house lay between it and the pleasant park where the deer wandered farther off where buckingham palace now is was buckingham house it was then a stately country mansion on the road to chelsea with semicircular wings and a sweep of iron railings enclosing a spacious court where a fountain played round a triton driving his sea-horses on the roof stood statues of mercury liberty secrecy and equity 
and across the front ran an inscription in great gold letters sic city laetantur lares the household gods might well delight in so fair a spot and in the music of that little wilderness full of blackbirds and nightingales which the bowl-playing duke who built the house lovingly describes to his friend shrewsbury most of the streets in the st james's region bear the names they bore when king george first came to london but it is only in name that they are unchanged the street of streets st james's street is metamorphosed indeed since the days when grotesque signs swung overhead and great gilt carriages lumbered up and down from the park and the chairs of modish ladies crowded up the narrow thoroughfares splendid warriors fresh from flanders or the rhine clinked their courtly swords against the posts red-coated country gentlemen jostled their wondering way through the crowd and the wig and tory bow with ruffles and rapiers powder and perfume haunted the coffee-houses of their factions not a house of the old street remains as it was then not one of the panelled rooms in which minuets were danced by candlelight to the jingle of harpsichord and tinkle of spinet where wits planned pamphlets and pointed epigrams where statesmen schemed the overthrow of ministries and even of dynasties where flushed youth punted away its fortunes or drank away its senses and staggered out perhaps through the little crowd of chairmen and link-boys clustered at the door to extinguish its foolish flame in a duel at leicester fields all that world is gone only the name of the street remains as full in its way of memories and associations as the SPQR at the head of a municipal proclamation in modern Rome. The streets off St. James's Street, too, retain their ancient names and nothing more. King Street, Ryder Street, York Street, German Street, the spelling of which seems to have puzzled last-century writers greatly, for they wrote it J-E-R-M-Y-N, G-E-R-M-I-N, g-e-r-m-a-i-n-e -E, and even g-e-r-m-i-n st james's church wren's handiwork is all that remains from the age of anne with the steeple says stripe fondly lately finished with a fine spire which adds much splendour to this end of the town and also serves as a landmark perhaps it sometimes served as a landmark to richard steele reeling happily to the home in berry street where his beloved prue awaited him st james's square has gone through many metamorphoses since it was first built in sixteen sixty five and called the piazza in seventeen fourteen there was a rectangular enclosure in the centre with four passages at the sides through which the public could come and go as they pleased in a later generation the inhabitants railed the enclosure round and set in the middle an oval basin of water large enough to have a boat upon it in old engravings we see people gravely punting about on the quaint little pond the fullness of time filled in the pond and set up king william the third instead in the middle of a grassy circle it would take too long to enumerate all the changes that our georgian gentleman would find in the london of his day some few however are especially worth recording he would seek in vain for the piccadilly he knew with its stately houses and fair gardens 
it was almost a country road to the left of st james's street between the green park and hyde park with meadows and the distant hills beyond going eastward he would find that a henrietta street and a king street still led into covent garden but the covent garden of his time was an open place with a column and a sundial in the middle handsome dwellings for persons of repute and quality stood on the north side over those arcades which were fondly supposed by inigo jones who laid out the spot to resemble the piazza in venice inigo jones built the church too which is to be seen in the morning plate of hogarth's four times of the day this church was destroyed by fire in seventeen ninety five and was rebuilt in its present form by hardwick charing cross was still a narrow spot where three streets met what is now trafalgar square was covered with houses and the royal mews st martin's church was not built by gibbs for a dozen years later in seventeen twenty six soho and seven dials were fashionable neighbourhoods mrs teresa cornley's house of entertainment of which we hear so much from the writers of the time of anne was considered to be most fashionably situated ambassadors and peers dwelt in gerard street bolingbroke lived in golden square traces of former splendour still linger about these decayed neighbourhoods paintings by sir james thornhill hogarth's master and father-in-law and elaborate marble mantelpieces with corinthian columns and entablatures still adorn the interiors of some of these houses bits of quaint queen anne architecture and finely wrought iron railings still lend an air of faded gentility to some of the dingy exteriors parts of london that are now fashionable had not then come into existence grosvenor square was only begun in seventeen sixteen and it was not until seventeen twenty five that the new quarter was sufficiently advanced for its creator sir richard grosvenor to summon his intending tenants to a splendid entertainment at which the new streets and squares were solemnly named though we of to-day have seen a good deal of what are called anne and georgian houses of red brick curiously gabled springing up in all directions we must not suppose that the london of seventeen fourteen was chiefly composed of such cheerful buildings wren and vanborough would be indeed surprised if they could see the strange works that are now done if not in their name at least in the name of the age for which they built their heavy plain solid houses we can learn easily enough from contemporary engravings what the principal london streets and squares were like when george the elector became george the king there are not many remains now of anne's london but queen anne's gate some few houses in queen square bloomsbury and here and there a house in the city preserve the ordinary architecture of the age of anne marlborough house bears witness to what it did in the way of more pretentious buildings the insides of these houses were scarcely less like the queen anne revival of our time than the outsides the rooms were as a rule sparingly furnished there would be a centre table some chairs a settee a few pictures a mirror possibly a spinet or musical instrument of some kind some shelves perhaps for displaying the chinese and japanese porcelain which every one loved 
and of course heavy window curtains smaller tables were used for the incessant tea-drinking large screens kept off the too frequent draughts handsomely wrought stoves and andirons stood in the wide fireplaces the rooms themselves were lofty the walls of the better kind wainscoted and carved and the ceilings painted in allegorical designs wallpapers had only begun to come into use within the last few years of anne's reign windows were long and narrow and small panes were a necessity as glassmakers had not yet attained the art of casting large sheets of glass the stairs were exceedingly straight it was mentioned as a recommendation to new houses that two persons could go upstairs abreast the rents would seem curiously low to londoners of our time houses could be got in pall mall for two hundred a year and in good parts of the town for thirty forty and fifty pounds a year lady wentworth in seventeen o five describes a house in golden square with garden stables and coach-house the rent of which was only threescore pounds a year pretty riverside homes let at from five to ten pounds a year lodgings would seem cheap now though they were not held so then for swift complains of paying eight shillings a week when he lodged in bury street for a dining-room and bedroom on the first floor there was no general numbering of houses in seventeen fourteen that movement of civilization did not take place until seventeen sixty four places were known by their signs or their vicinity to a sign blue boars black swans and the red lions were in every street and people lived at the red bodice or over against the pestle the tatler tells the story of a young man seeking a house in barbican for a whole day through a mistake in a sign whose legend read this is the beer instead of this is the bear another tried to get into a house at stocks market under the impression that he was at his own lodgings at charing cross being misled by the fact that there was a statue of the king on horseback in each place signs were usually very large and jutted so far out from the houses that in narrow streets they frequently touched one another as it was the fashion to have them carefully painted carved gilded and supported by branches of wrought iron they were often very costly some being estimated as worth more than a hundred guineas the ill-paved streets were too often littered with the refuse which careless householders reckless of fines flung into the open way in wet weather the rain roared along the kennel converting all the accumulated filth of the thoroughfare into loathsome mud the gutter spouts which then projected from every house did not always cast their cataracts clear of the pavement but sometimes soaked the unlucky passer-by who had not kept close to the wall umbrellas were the exclusive privilege of women men never thought of carrying them those whose business or pleasure called them abroad in rainy weather and who did not own carriages might hire one of the eight hundred two-horsed hackney coaches jolting uncomfortable machines with perforated tin sashes instead of window glasses and grumbling ever dissatisfied drivers there were very few sedan chairs these were still a comparative novelty for general use and their bearers were much abused for their drunkenness clumsiness and incivility 
the streets were always crowded coaches chairs wheelbarrows fops chimney sweeps porters bearing huge burdens bullies swaggering with great swords bailiffs chasing some impecunious poet cut purses funerals christenings weddings and street fights would seem from some contemporary accounts to be invariably mixed up together in helpless and apparently inextricable confusion the general bewilderment was made more bewildering by the very babble of street cries bawled from the sturdy lungs of orange girls chair menders broom sellers ballad singers old clothes men and wretched representatives of the various jails raising their plaintive appeal to remember the poor prisoners the thoroughfares however would have been in still worse condition but for the fact that so much of the passenger traffic of the metropolis was done by water and not by land the wherries on the thames were as frequent as the gondolas on the canals of venice across the river down the river up the river passengers hurried incessantly in the swift little boats that plied for hire and were rowed by one man with a pair of skulls or two men with oars despite the numbers of the river steamers at present and the crowds who take advantage of them it may well be doubted whether so large a proportion of the passenger traffic of london is borne by the river in the days of queen victoria as there was in the days of queen anne darkness and danger ruled the roads at night with all the horrors of the rome of juvenal oil lamps flickered freely in some of the better streets but even these were not lit so long as any suggestion of twilight served for an excuse to delay the illumination when the moon shone they were not lit at all link boys drove a busy trade in lighting belated wanderers to their homes and saving them from the perils of places where the pavement was taken up or where open sewers yawned precaution was needful for pitfalls of the kind were not always marked by warning lanterns footpads roamed about and worse than footpads the fear of the mohawks had not yet faded from civic memories and there were still wild young men enough to rush through the streets wrenching off knockers insulting quiet people and defying the watch indeed the watch were as a rule as unwilling to interfere with dangerous revellers as were the billmen of messina and seemed to have been little better than thieves or mohawks themselves they were freely accused of being ever ready to levy blackmail upon those who walked abroad at night by raising ingenious accusations of insobriety and insisting upon being bought off or conveying their victim to the roundhouse the fleet ditch which is almost as much of a myth in our generation as the stream of black cossetus itself was an unsavoury reality still in the london which george i entered it was a tributary of the thames which rising somewhere among the gentle hills of hampstead sought out the river and found it at blackfriars at one time it was used for the conveyance of coals into the city and colliers of moderate size used to ascend it for a short distance but toward the end of anne's reign and indeed for long before it had become a mere trickling puddle 
discharging its filth and refuse and sewage into the river and poisoning the air around it. Mayfair was still, and for many years later, celebrated in the now fashionable quarter which bears its name. The fair lasted for six weeks and left about six months' demoralization behind it. Smock races, that is to say races run by young women for a prize of a laced chemise, the competitors sometimes being attired only in their smocks, were still to be seen in Pall Mall and various other places. This popular amusement was kept up in London until 1733 and lingered in country places to a much later time. Bartholomew Fair was scarcely less popular or less renowned for its specialty of roast-sucking pig than in the days when Ben Jonson's master Little Wit and his wife, win the fight, made acquaintance with its wild humors. There is a colored print of about this time which gives a sufficiently vivid presentment of the fair. At Lee and Harper's booth the tragedy of Judith and Holofernes is announced by a great glaring painted cloth, while the platform is occupied by a gentleman in Roman armor and a lady in Eastern attire, who are, no doubt, the principal characters of the play. A gaudy harlequin and his brother Scaramouche invite the attention of the passers-by. In another booth, rope-dancing of men and women is offered to the less tragically-minded, and in yet another the world-renowned Fox displays the announcement of his conjuring marvels. A peep-show of the siege of Gibraltar allures the patriotic. Toy-shops presided over by attractive damsels lure the light-hearted and the light-fingered too, for many an intelligent pickpocket seizes the opportunity to rifle the pocket of some too occupied customer. There is a revolving swing, and go-carts are drawn by dogs for the delight of children. Hucksters go about selling gin, aniseed, and fruits, and large booths offer meat, cider, punch, and skittles. The place is thronged with visitors and beggars. A portly figure in a scarlet coat and wearing an order is said to be no less a person than Sir Robert Walpole, who is rumored to have occasionally honored the fair with his presence. Few of the clubs that play so important a part in the history of last-century London had come into existence in 1714. The most famous of them either were not yet founded or lived only as coffee or chocolate houses. There had been literary associations like the Sclibleris Club, which was started by Swift and was finally dissolved by the quarrels of Oxford and Bolingbroke. The Saturday and Brothers Clubs had been political societies, at both of which Swift was all-powerful, but they too were no more. The Kit-Kat Club, of mystic origin and enigmatic name, with all its loyalty to Hanover and all its memories of bright toasts of steel, Addison and Godfrey Kneller had passed away in 1709, and met no more in Shire Lane off Fleet Street or at the Upper Flask Inn at Hampstead. It had not lived in vain, according to Walpole, who declared that its patriots had saved the country. Within its rooms, the evil omen Lord Mohun had broken the gilded emblem of the crown off his chair. Jacob Tonson, the bookseller, who was secretary to the club, querulously insisted that the man who would do that would cut a man's throat, and Lord Mohun's fatal career fully justified Tonson's judgment. 
if the kit-kat patriots had saved the country the tory patriots of the october club were no less prepared to do the same the october club came first into importance in the latest years of anne although it had existed since the last decade of the seventeenth century the stout tory squires met together in the bell tavern in narrow dirty king street westminster to drink october ale under doll's portrait of queen anne and to trouble with their fierce uncompromising jacobitism the fluctuating purposes of harley and the crafty counsels of st john the genius of swift tempered their hot zeal with the cool air of his advice then the wilder spirits seceded and formed the march club which retained all the angry jacobitism of the parent body but lost all its importance there were wilder associations like the hellfire club which under the presidency of the duke of wharton was distinguished for the desperate attempts it made to justify its name but it was like its president short-lived and soon forgotten there are fantastic rumours of a calves head club organized in mockery of all kings and especially of the royal martyrs it was said by obscure pamphleteers to be founded by john milton but whether the body ever had any real existence seems now to be uncertain next to the clubs came the mug houses the mug houses were political associations of a humbler order where men met together to drink beer and denounce the whigs or tories according to their convictions but at this time the coffee-houses occupied the most important position in social life there were a great many of them each with some special association which still keeps it in men's memories at garraway's in change alley tea was first retailed at the high prices which then made tea a luxury the rainbow in fleet street the second coffee-house opened in london is mentioned in the spectator the first was bowman's in st michael's alley cornhill lloyd's in lombard street was dear to steele and addison at don saltero's by the river at chelsea mr salter exhibited his collection of curiosities and delighted himself and no one else by playing the fiddle at the smyrna prior and swift were wont to receive their acquaintances from the st james's the last house but one on the southwest corner of st james's street the tatler dated its foreign and domestic news and conferred fame on its waiter mr kidney who has long conversed with and filled tea for the most consummate politicians it was the headquarters of whigs and officers of the guards letters from stella were left here for swift and here in later years originated goldsmith's retaliation wills at the north corner of russell street and bow street famous for its memories of dryden and for the tatler's dramatic criticisms had ceased to exist in seventeen fourteen its place was taken by buttons at the other side of russell street started by addison in seventeen twelve here later was the lion-head letter-box for the guardian designed by hogarth at child's in st paul's churchyard the spectator often smoked a pipe sir roger de coverley was beloved at squires near gray's inn gate 
slaughters in st martin's lane was often honoured by the presence first of dryden and then of pope searles near lincoln's inn was cherished by the law at the gresham in devereux court strand learned men met and quarrelled a fatal duel was once fought in consequence of an argument there over the accent on a greek word at the gresham too steele amused himself by putting the action of homer's iliad into an exact journal and planning his temple of fame from white's chocolate house which afterwards became the famous club came mr isaac bickerstaff's accounts of gallantry pleasure and entertainment the cocoa tree was the tory coffee-house in st james's street ozinda's chocolate house next to st james's palace was also a tory resort and its owner was arrested in seventeen fifteen for supposed complicity in jacobite conspiracy to these coffee and chocolate houses came all the wit and all the fashion of london men of letters and statesmen men of the robe and men of the sword lawyers dandies poets and philosophers met there to discuss politics literature scandal and the play there were often very strange figures among the motley crowd behind the red-curtained windows of a st james's coffee-house the gentleman who made himself so agreeable to the barmaid or who chatted so affably about the conduct of the allies or the latest news from sweden might meet you again later on if your road lay at all outside town and imperious request you to stand and deliver but of all the varied assembly the strangest figures must have been the beaux and exquisites in all their various degrees of dappers fops smart fellows pretty fellows and very pretty fellows they made a brave show in many-coloured splendour of attire heavily scented with orange flower water civet violet or musk with large falbalal periwigs or long powdered duvilliers with snuff-boxes and dragon or right jamery canes curiously clouded and amber-headed dangling by a blue ribbon from the wrist or the coat-button the staff was as essential to an early georgian gentleman as to an athenian of the age of pericles and the cane-carrying custom incurred the frequent attacks of the satirists cane-bearers were made to declare that the knocking of the cane upon the shoe leaning one leg upon it or whistling with it in the mouth were such reliefs to them in conversation that they did not know how to be good company without it some of these young men appeared to have affected effeminacy like an agathon or a henri trois steele has put it on record that he heard some who set up to be pretty fellows calling to one another at white's or the st james's by the names of betty nelly and so forth servants play almost as important parts as their masters in the humours of the time rich people were always surrounded by a throng of servants first came the valet de chambre who was expected to know a little of everything from shaving and wig-making to skill in country sports and had as much experience in all town matters as a servant out of terence or moliere last came the negro slave who waited on my lord or my lady with the silver collar of servitude about his neck End of chapter five part one 
Recording by Pamela Nagami.